Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A proposal to tax drivers by the mile to make public transit free. Drivers, uh, according to this plan, would pay four cents for every mile that they drive on the roads. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Health officials predict a rough flu season ahead. You can die from the flu. It can definitely put you in the hospital, and often you'll see a secondary pneumonia from after a flu infection. How the VA is standing in the way of veterans receiving treatment outside their system and the local vigils to honor Dia de los Muertos. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. As many of the world's leaders gather in Glasgow, Scotland for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the fight against climate change is taking center stage. Here's President Biden addressing the conference earlier this morning. We're standing at an inflection point in world history. We have the ability to invest in ourselves and build an equitable, clean energy future, and in the process, create millions of good-paying jobs and opportunities around the world. Late last week, closer to home, the San Diego Association of Governments, better known as SANDAG, announced a bold transportation proposal to reduce the region's greenhouse gas emissions, a step in its fight against climate change. It could have a major impact on how San Diegans travel day to day. Here to talk more about the plan and its potential impacts on the region is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks. Can you tell us about what was proposed last week and how it would impact San Diego? Well, on Friday, the Sandag board discussed several updates to its regional transportation plan. This is the roadmap that the county uses to show state and federal authorities that they've got a plan for how to meet everyone's transportation needs 
far into the future. We're talking out to uh, 2050. And the state has required Sandag to uh, significantly reduce both the number of miles that people drive in their automobiles day to day and overall greenhouse gas emissions. This plan was first announced earlier in the year, in the spring, uh, and the updates that they were um, proposing or discussing on Friday were mostly small tweaks to the plans or maybe a little bit more detail to things that they had already discussed earlier. There is an emphasis on traffic safety, uh, trying to reduce the number of deaths and serious injuries on our roadways. Uh, There was a plan to uh, try and incorporate more bathrooms at public transit stops, uh, language on the importance of preserving habitat and open space. The area that got the most amount of discussion and controversy was some changes to how this whole plan will be funded, including this road user charge that would be uh, imposed on uh, people for every mile that they drive in their cars. And there was a great deal of reaction from the announcement of of a pair of those mile taxes for drivers that you mentioned. How would that work? Well, first a bit of background. So for many years, the gas tax has not been paying for all of our transportation infrastructure needs. Revenues from the gas tax funds have been declining for for decades, really, as more people drive uh, more fuel-efficient vehicles, hybrids, and electric vehicles. And so the idea is that by 2030, drivers, uh, according to this plan, would pay four cents for every mile that they drive on the roads. Uh, two cents would go to the state. This is just kind of the uh, Sandag's way of assuming, you know, start picking a number saying, let's say the state uh, charges two cents for every mile and we will charge another two cents on top of that. And the idea is that this uh, road charge would actually replace the gas tax or uh, some adjustment would be made to the gas tax so people aren't paying twice. It's just kind of a a change in the way that we calculate the cost of driving because right now uh, electric vehicles are uh, using the roads. They're, you know, putting stress on the roads, which, you know, ultimately over time causes potholes and deterioration of the infrastructure, but they're not paying any money in gas taxes. So uh, how do we capture those, uh, you know, the the cost of that um, stress on the infrastructure in a way that's kind of fairer to everybody? And what effect will this have on how public transportation works and operates in the region? Well, the regional transportation plan that Sandag is discussing includes a a very significant investment in new public transit infrastructure. There are multiple commuter rail lines that would be running uh, across the county. We're talking new lines uh, that are separated from traffic. So either, uh, you know, a subway system uh, or an above ground, uh, you know, elevated railway. Uh, And the idea, again, is to not just charge people for uh, driving for every mile that they drive, but also to make public transit free by 2030. So, uh, you know, the same year that this uh, road user charge would come into effect. And this really gets at the uh, strategy of a carrot and stick approach. We've heard a lot of criticism, particularly as Congress is debating the Build Back Better Act and the, you know, uh, social spending and climate change funding for, um, you know, reducing our, our carbon footprint. You hear a lot of criticism from climate activists and climate scientists that we rely too much on carrots uh, or incentives to get people to, say, put rooftop solar panels on their roofs or uh, drive electric vehicles. And we don't have enough sticks. 
you know, ways to sort of like nudge people a little bit further in that direction. So pricing the system, pricing the transportation system so that everyone can see in real dollars and cents that it's in their interest and everybody else's interest to drive a whole lot less and take more sustainable modes of transportation, I think is really at the heart of this strategy of making transit free and also pricing driving more. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria announced support for the plan. He has also made equity a key part of San Diego's actions on climate. Here he is speaking about the city's Our Climate, Our Future plan. Our response to the climate crisis must take into account the disproportionate impacts on historically underserved communities and appropriately address those existing inequities. So how does the Sandag plan address issues of equity? Sandag officials have described their plan to me as trying to solve for a couple of different things. Uh, One of them is just meeting the obligations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, creating a legally compliant transportation plan. But another thing that they're trying to solve for is this issue of social equity. They've done quite a bit of data analysis on access to opportunity in different parts of the county. And, you know, they can get down to the minute, essentially, how much time it takes for a person to get to work in, say, one neighborhood like uh, National City or uh, City Heights or uh, San Marcos compared to another neighborhood like somebody who lives downtown or in Kearney Mesa or anywhere. And so they're taking all of that data, trying to uh, incorporate it into their long-term transportation planning and just making real decisions about where they're going to build this rail line or you know how much uh, funding they're going to dedicate to a new high, high-speed high bus uh, line um, that go through different neighborhoods. Unsurprisingly, uh, low-income people have some of the most difficult difficult commute times. Many of them uh, perhaps don't have access to a car to get to work, so they're using public transit, which takes a whole lot longer. And so the plan really aims to make improvements to those less uh, affluent or uh, areas with less access to opportunity first. And so one example, a real sort of example, is the alignment of one of their commuter rail lines that they're planning uh, puts a station in City Heights instead of North Park. So what has to happen for this plan to be implemented? A lot. (laughs) The first thing that has to happen is on December 10th, the Sandag Board of Directors has to vote to approve it. Uh, But then, you know, the actual implementation of the plan relies on many different things. First of all, voters would have to approve new tax measures. You know, the state and federal governments would probably have to step up their funding of infrastructure. There are lots of different things that have to happen in order for this plan to become a reality. Uh, Many of them are, you know, multiple decisions many, many years into the future. Uh, but, you know, the the next step, I would say, is just uh, December 10th, the final vote at the Sandak Board of Directors. I've been speaking to KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jade. As San Diego works on implementing climate action in transportation, Californians at the United Nations Climate Conference in Scotland are working with world leaders on tackling the global threat of climate change. So the California report thought now would be a good time to revisit the state's goals and what's being done to achieve them. California report host Saul Gonzalez spoke with KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero about this. 
I can see why nations have climate change mitigation goals, but why California? Why should the Golden State have a climate change target or policies like in Germany or China or Norway? Yeah, well, simply put, California has the largest economy out of all the states. And if we were a sovereign nation, we would rank fifth in that of the whole world. So what we do here matters and it influences national policy. It's also important to note that the state doesn't have a negotiating seat at COP26 because they're not a nation. But all of this is a chance for state leaders to tout its climate work and to compare ourselves to the rest of the world. So tell me about California's goals when it comes to reducing greenhouse gases. How are we doing when it comes to achieving that? Well, we have a lot of goals here, everything from car and truck emission standards, a law that mandates a quarter of all cap and trade funds go to low-income communities. And we also have rules that mandate reducing short-term lived climate pollutants like methane. We want to reduce those by 50% in less than a decade. But I think most notably, the state reached its 2020 goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions below 1990 levels four years early. So that was a really big deal. But some scientists say the state isn't on track to meet stricter goals by 2030 or even 2050. And in September, the legislature failed to pass the California Climate Crisis Act. That bill would have had the state become climate neutral as soon as possible and no later by 2045. And climate activists and some scientists say that was a lost opportunity to take the climate crisis seriously. You know, when I think of a contributor to climate change, I immediately think of all of the cars on California's highways and freeways and roads. What's happening there? California has this goal to have 1.5 million zero emission vehicles on roads by 2025 and then 5 million by 2030. So far, we have fewer than a million and there's only something like 2 million nationwide. So there's a long way to go. There's a lot of work to get to that point. But then there's all the infrastructure that we need to support those cars. The state has a goal of 250,000 charging stations by 2025 and we only have about 75,000 so far. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And finally, Ezra, you know as well as I do that California has this clean, green reputation. We're the land of solar farms and wind farms and lots of Teslas. We should be pretty well positioned to meet our climate change goals. But is that the reality? Yeah, well, California, you know, we have this litany of climate policies and plans, and you might see electric vehicles like Teslas all over the place. But it's at the same time, it's also the seventh largest producer of crude oil in the country. And remember, this climate crisis is all about the effects of what happens when we burn fossil fuels. So in one way, we are this place that has these climate emission goals and it's really great. But on the other side, we're an oil state. And the state auditor recently said that if California doesn't make deeper cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, it will likely fail to reach its goals. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. That was KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero speaking with California Report host Saul Gonzalez. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Get your flu shot now. That's what San Diego public health officials are urging as they warn about the potential for a bad flu season ahead. The number of people getting flu shots in the county is lagging from last year at this time. And experts warn that with decreased immunity and the end of social distancing, flu could be a real problem through the holiday season. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune health care reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. What are the factors that might make this a bad flu season? You know, there are several. As you mentioned, uh, we're just doing a lot less uh, social distancing and masking and, you know, maybe hand washing as well than we were this time last year, uh, headed into a season when many more people are going to be closer together than they usually are because the weather is getting colder. So there are fewer events and activities happening outdoors. That's generally, uh, you know, just a ripe uh, situation for viruses, especially respiratory viruses to spread from person to person. And then we've got a really kind of interesting additional situation with the flu this year. Uh, public health experts that I've been speaking to have been mentioning that because we didn't have a severe flu season last year, due to all of the uh, special precautions we had in place, uh, that we weren't exposed to the flu as much as we usually are as a community. Uh, and so that means that our immune systems didn't have to fight off this bug like they usually do. And that creates a less antibody protection overall in the community than is usually the case. So how does immunity work from year to year with the flu? Does, does immunity decline fast? Uh, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I spent a fair amount of back and forth time with a, with a really good researcher over at UCSD last week on this very topic. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you may recall that back in 2009, when we had the H1N1 epidemic, uh, older people were, were more protected than younger people. Uh, and they found, it, found out that that's because uh, older folks were uh, exposed to certain flu viruses uh, many decades ago that looked a lot like H1N1 that showed up in 2009 and caused so much trouble. Uh, and so really the way our immune systems work, from what I understand, is that we have long-lasting memory cells that remember what viruses we have encountered before, uh, but those memory cells have to be kind of nudged by a, by a new threat to begin uh, producing uh, the special B cells uh, in our bone marrow and, and other in plasma to uh, to, to create the antibodies in our blood that we need. And, and research is showing that uh, for the flu, those, those uh, antibody-producing cells don't last so long. They may be gone within a year. Uh, so just the act of re-encountering the flu causes our immune system to start producing a whole other batch of antibodies uh, for, for a lot of different flu viruses that we've encountered before. And so just having that encounter really gets everybody almost like a booster shot that, that creates some level of herd immunity in the community that lasts into the next season. So why are we encouraged to get a flu shot every year? That's, that actually has two uh, simultaneous functions. Uh, in one case, the flu mutates very fastly. It's a, it's a very quick changing virus that, uh, that needs to have uh, retargeting of the vaccine every year to, to 
fight the versions that are going to be circulating in, in various communities. So we need sort of a retargeting. And at the same time, we also need uh, almost like a booster shot just to get our, our system making antibodies against uh, a lot of different versions of flu that look like the one that is going to be coming around. And when do flu cases actually start to spike? If you look at the annual chart that the county puts out uh, every week, uh, it's pretty clear that mid to late November is usually the time when we really see kind of that hockey stick curve really sharply heading up. And then it continues to increase through the holidays and into the new year. And how long does it take for a shot that maybe I got today to provide immunity? What the uh, experts say is it takes about two weeks. Uh, so that's really why they're urging folks to, to come forward now and get vaccinated just because it's going to take two weeks for immunity to build in your body. And, and by then we'll be into mid-November. So, so it's really a good idea to, to get after it right now if you can. You know, we've been so inundated with uh, concerns over COVID-19, and rightly so, but perhaps we forget that how badly ill one can get with the flu. So how seriously ill can you get with a case of flu? I mean, you can die from the flu. Uh, the the uh, CDC estimates that the flu kills between 12,000 and 52,000 people per year nationwide, uh, and that really depends on the severity of the individual year. Uh, and, you know, how well the vaccines are matched to the circulating version um, that's that's really causing all of the illness. Um, it can definitely put you in the hospital, uh, you know, and often you'll see a secondary uh, pneumonia that comes from, uh, you know, after after flu infection. Are hospitals and other healthcare providers maybe getting ready for what could potentially be a dual surge in COVID and flu cases? Yeah, I mean, I think they're always trying to be ready for, for anything that comes at them. Um, I, th I think they are definitely very concerned right now about staffing shortages that started this summer, uh, you know, and then uh, the, the, the COVID mandates that have uh, reduced the size of their workforce. So, yeah, I think that they are definitely doing what they can to get ready. But they've been telling us uh, all summer that they're, they're really struggling to uh, to meet their staffing needs. Uh, so anything we could do to stay out of their hospitals, I think they'd really appreciate there's been a lot of COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. The flu vaccine, though, is a different beast entirely. Do we anticipate any lingering hesitancy when it comes to getting a flu shot this year? I think there's always been a fair amount of hesitancy. I think we usually get uh, about a million and a half or maybe a little less than that uh, flu vaccines in arms every year. So I think our vaccination rate is usually something around 50%. Uh, so, so there's always been a, a fair amount of reluctance. Um, last year was, uh, I think they said, a, a record in terms of the number, total number of uh, folks who came forward for flu shots. Uh, and so it's hard to say, really. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, may have come forward for the uh, COVID vaccine and previously not received the uh, flu vaccine. So it, it may, I guess it could go either way. I haven't really heard any experts weigh in on exactly how they expect those two factors to influence each other. And can you get flu shots as easily as COVID shots? Oh, absolutely. Um, maybe even easier. You know, uh, all of the pharmacies can give them to you, uh, plus your all, all of your healthcare uh, uh, organizations, all of their uh, main medical offices uh, are able to to give flu shots. Uh, and the county has uh, immunization clinics uh, out there for those who who don't have a primary uh, medical provider. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 very easy to get a flu shot uh, if you want one. Okay, time to get another shot. <laughs> I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thanks for having me.
An iNews source investigation has found that the VA is preventing veterans from getting treatments outside its hospitals. Here's iNews source reporter Jill Castellano to share what she uncovered in the first part of her two-part series. On a sunny afternoon in August, Navy veteran Christine Russell walked around her church in northern San Diego County. This is St. Michael's by the Sea. It's an Orthodox Episcopalian church. Russell started coming here in 2016, around the time she first felt unbearable pain in her body. That year, she went to the emergency room more than a dozen times. Every time I went to the ER, they kept insinuating that uh, my chest pain was psychosomatic, that it was um, anxiety, and that it was depression, and it was not. Because she's a veteran, Russell gets her health care through the San Diego VA. She says doctors there misdiagnosed her symptoms for almost three years. Finally, in late 2018, she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. That's when the VA agreed to send Russell to experts at other hospitals. Having my doctor in the community allows me to have other options through other windows and doors that I wouldn't have if my cancer doctor was in the VA hospital. Then, in February of this year, Russell got a letter from the San Diego VA saying it would no longer pay for her treatments. She was already $30,000 in medical debt, so she couldn't afford the treatment if the VA didn't pay for it. It's like they cut my legs off, basically. You know, they cut off my lifelines because all those doctors are my integrative support team. They are why I'm still alive. Russell is not the only one. An iNews source investigation has found that across the country, VA administrators are overruling doctors and preventing them from sending patients outside its hospitals. These efforts have ramped up following a 2018 landmark law called the Mission Act. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. When the law was passed, President Donald Trump and Congress said it would ensure veterans have access to the health care they need. If the VA can't provide high-quality treatment in a timely manner, they'll pay for the veteran to go somewhere else. Why can't they just go see a doctor instead of standing online for weeks and weeks and weeks? Now they can go see a doctor. It's going to be great. But the Mission Act has cost the VA billions of dollars. So starting in 2019, the VA created new rules that are supposed to save money and keep veterans inside the health care system. Here's Dr. Kathleen Kim, the chief of staff of the San Diego VA. Because of the nature of the Mission Act, the VA is sending a lot of care into the community, and we're worried that we're not going to be able to pay our bills. Kim defended the VA, saying treatment plans are still based on veterans' medical needs. She explained that it's often better for patients to get their care at the VA, so there are no problems coordinating paperwork or treatment plans with other hospitals. But experts and advocates say the VA could be preventing veterans from getting much-needed medical care. It basically defeats the whole purpose of the Mission Act and why we set up the criteria. That's Darren Selnick, who helped write the Mission Act. We're in Oceanside at the Veterans Association of North County, and he has keepsakes from his time working on the law laid out in front of us. Military stuff. What is that exactly? Scorecard. Red, yellow, green. Are we in progress? So when I implemented the Mission Act, I developed the scorecard. 
and then I rated everybody. And they all thought they were green until I came in, and then they're all red and yellow. Selnick says medical decisions should be left to patients and their doctors, not administrators. So it's, it's ludicrous to, to have anyone else review and say that the referring clinician who's working with the patient doesn't know best. It's just ludicrous. As for Christine Russell, when the VA sent her that letter cutting off her cancer treatments, the decision was made by a group of people she had never met before. Were these people in communication with you about your care on a regular basis? No. No, they were not. None of them. But they were making the decisions? Yes. How does that feel? Horrible. After a lot of angry phone calls, Russell was able to restart her treatments outside the VA. But it hasn't been a smooth process. She recently got this voicemail from her VA primary care doctor. Hi, this is a VA in Oceanside calling from Dr. Krubenar's office. Russell's doctor tried to send her to three specialists outside the VA, but the requests were not approved. It wasn't approved because they didn't approve the community care. Russell is still fighting for her medical care. Every day is a physical and mental challenge. You know, I have my psychologist and my psychiatrist, but that's not enough. What I have is Jesus. On difficult days, Russell turns to her church's music for comfort. Joining me is iNewsource reporter Jill Castellano. Jill, welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a disturbing report that we just heard. How is Christine Russell doing now? Well, honestly, she's still struggling. Um, one bit of good news, the voicemail that you heard played there, Russell now actually was able to get some of those treatments approved in the community. But it is a constant struggle is the way she describes it. Every now and then she'll get another notification of some kind that she can't get the treatments that she needs outside the VA and she's got to go through some hoops again to get those renewed. She is still struggling with her cancer and it's a difficult journey for her, uh, but she is doing the best that she can and taking care of herself. And just to be clear, the problem that arose in her case is the VA not allowing the outside treatment that her VA doctors recommended. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Russell has a pretty complex case of cancer, so VA doctors encouraged her to go somewhere else for treatments, feeling that they were not best suited to help her. Yet, in this case, the VA decided no longer to pay for those treatments, decided to ask her to return to the VA to get her treatments at the VA anyway. Right. So when a VA patient is referred to and receives treatment by an outside doctor, someone who's not part of the VA system, the VA is billed for that. So how does, how does that work? Yes, that's right. If veterans meet one of six criteria under the 2018 Mission Act, the VA is required to pay for that veteran to get care somewhere else. Healthcare experts will say, well, this creates an incentive for them to keep veterans inside the VA system so they don't have to pay for that external treatment. And why does the VA need to refer patients outside the network to begin with? Yeah, well, under, under the Mission Act, there are these six criteria. So 
If a veteran, for example, is facing a really long wait time for a VA appointment, let's say it's two months to see an oncologist, then the vet will be qualified to get their care somewhere else. Also, a really long drive. If you're two hours from the closest VA, the U.S. government has decided that's too far for you to go for your mental health care or your you know, whatever treatment you need to get outside the VA or in the VA. So they're going to try to send you somewhere else that's closer to you or more convenient for you. There are other reasons too. Sometimes the VA simply does not offer the care that you need. For example, OBGYNs or doctors who help with women's health issues are not a focus of the VA since most vets are men. So oftentimes, let's say you're a pregnant woman, they're going to send you somewhere else for that care somebody who can specialize and really help you with what you need. Another reason is if it's in the veteran's best medical interest, and this one is a little bit tricky, but it essentially means if a VA doctor and the patient agree that it's in the patient's best medical interest for some reason to go outside of the VA, they should be able to get that care outside of the VA. I should mention this kind of process eventually happens in all hospital systems. There's no hospital that offers every single treatment known in the United States. Eventually, if you've got a complex case, you've got something come up that your hospital doesn't know how to handle appropriately, they're going to send you somewhere else. But instead of creating the Mission Act, which is apparently incredibly expensive for the VA, Why didn't the government give additional funding to the VA system to expand its ability to care for veterans? Ah, that really hits on the heart of the debate and the current political feud around VA healthcare right now. Generally speaking, over the past seven years, the Republicans have been pushing for the creation of more standards, more ways for veterans to access care outside of the VA. That's because they're worried about veterans being in this closed off system where not the best care cannot be provided. Meanwhile, Democrats say, let's strengthen what the VA already has going for it and let's get it in a place where we don't need to send so many vets outside of the VA. The Mission Act actually was a compromise where it both created more ways for vets to get care outside of the VA, but it also gave a lot of funding to the VA, and the VA is continuing to expand its services, is looking for those avenues to make sure that patients can come and get the best care that they need. Is there a concern within the VA administration that spending money on outsourced medical care will actually decrease resources for patients within the VA system? Absolutely. That is a big concern that I've heard openly stated by VA administrators. They're very concerned about the possibility that sending patients outside of the VA will ultimately lead to less money in the VA. What does that mean? Less money for their own staff or for their own hospital equipment potentially. That could cause a problem. And this is part of why the documents that I found are showing that the VA is concerned about funding, and that's why they're trying to keep patients at the VA. That's why they're creating new rules and procedures to keep patients at the VA when they can. 
Part two of your report, Jill, will air tomorrow. And in it, you talk about the VA shutting down another outsourced medical program for veterans who were dealing with depression and PTSD. Can you give us a preview? Yes, I think the report airing tomorrow really shows how high the stakes can be with some of these veterans and how serious their conditions really are. It follows the story of Kiowa Wolf, who's a veteran in San Diego who was cut off from mental health treatment, a specialized community mental mental health treatment over a year ago. And it walks through his struggle, his journey to get that treatment back outside of the VA. I've been speaking with iNewsource reporter Jill Castellano. Jill, thank you. Thank you. To hear more about Jill's VA reporting, you can join her in person tonight at 6 p.m. at the Veterans Museum in Balboa Park. The event is hosted by Concerned Veterans for America. Visit iNewsource's Facebook page for more information. The state of California is grappling with a racist past and the idea of reparations for black descendants of slaves. There's a new task force studying this issue, and families are coming forward to share their experiences. CAP Radio's race and equity reporter Sarah Mises-Tan has the story of a black Sacramento family and their fight to write history. Out along a wooded road off Highway 49 in the gold rush town of Coloma stands a boarded up building. So right now we're standing in front of the Coloma Emanuel Church here in the town of Coloma. I'm out here with Jonathan Burgess. The church may look run down, but to him and his family, it means a lot more. Burgess dug deep into family documents and old deeds. Now, he and his family believe that this church, as well as much of the land surrounding it, was once owned by his great-great-grandfather. That is, until he says it was taken, using eminent domain by the state of California and made into a park. As a kid, I remember coming up here. It was just dusty roads, is my memory. And an older, you know, uh, you know, uncle, that my grandfather's brother, that could no longer talk. He would just point and cry. And now, as an adult, piecing this history together, I get why he was crying. Burgess is trying to make a legal case to get his land back. There are others doing the same. This is happening as California grapples with its legacy of oppression of people of color, in particular African Americans. The state has created a reparations task force to discuss how it might begin to apologize and make up for discriminatory policies and actions. Javon Scott Lewis is a geography professor at UC Berkeley and part of the state's task force. He says in order for California to grow into the state it is today, it had to take land from people of color. You still, you know, have a need to develop in largely already populated places. And so the only way that you can do that is through the removal of people, right, of communities, of landholders who, you know, to put it bluntly, are in the way. He says eminent domain was applied unequally, in particular to African-American communities that may not have had the power or money to resist. And the taking of this land has impacted generations of Californians. It is the interruption of intergenerational wealth, especially in African-American communities who had to, who've had to give up their land. You know, what you have is also an interruption to the stability of community development. So with that... Let's sign this bill and turn this property over. 
That's the sound of an event with Governor Gavin Newsom earlier this year. He enacted a new law and officially returned a strip of coastline back to an African-American family in Los Angeles. This case, called Bruce's Beach, has now become a landmark. For the descendants of the Bruce family, but for all of those families torn asunder because of racism all across this country. Kevon Ward helped lead the Bruce's Beach effort with her organization, Where Is My Land? So many people are expecting for Bruce's Beach to be the blueprint. Now she's been asked to help other families do the same, but she says the path is not easy. What people don't understand is that the alignment was there, right? The right people in the state assembly, the right people in the state senate, the right people in the county were there. I do believe that we will have success in other cases. We just have to figure out what that alignment looks like. For Jonathan Burgess and his family, he hopes that public advocacy and education about his family's legacy in Coloma can eventually spur lawmakers to similar action. For now, his family has contacted a law firm to help them gather documents for their case. And he's testified before the state's reparations committee to share his story. He hopes his family will see the return of the property and the renovation of the church soon. In the Sierra Nevada town of Coloma, I'm Sarah Mises-Tan. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Dia de los Muertos is being celebrated by many San Diegans today and tomorrow. It's a Mexican tradition to remember and honor loved ones who have died. This is done in large part by creating colorful altars that typically include photos of those who have died and their favorite foods and drinks, candles, marigolds, and more. Joining me to talk about how San Diegans are marking the day is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Welcome back, Gustavo. Well, thank you, Jade. So individuals create altars to honor family members who have died, but there are also a lot of groups that create altars as well. Tell me about that. Right. Well, it's not just groups. The government is in on it, too. And and I think Dia de los Muertos is a holiday that really lends itself to this because it's, it's a public uh, display of, I don't want to say mourning, it's more of celebration of, of and remembrance of loved ones who have passed away. And it's done so in a public manner. And I think a lot of activism groups kind of take that as a form of drawing attention to certain causes or specifically people who have died as a result of certain issues that that they advocate for, whether it be uh, crime or COVID or, or immigration policies. We've kind of seen it over the last couple of years here in San Diego kind of expand 
Uh, the county just unveiled an altar to honor San Diegans who lost their lives to COVID. Uh, what can you tell me about that effort? Well, it's the second year that the county has done this. They've, they've encouraged people to submit images of friends and relatives who have died of COVID. Uh, here in San Diego, that's more than 4,000 San Diegans have died from the coronavirus. And it's actually being built as we speak right now, as we're recording this, um, outside of the county administration buildings uh, downtown by the Bay. And tomorrow, I know the county is going to hold a special ceremony as well around uh, 630, Tuesday, November 2nd. And another altar was created at the Otay Mesa Detention Center to honor those who have died in the custody of ICE. Tell me about the group behind that effort and what they're calling for. So the group is the American Friends Service Committee. They they advocate uh, for, generally speaking, for human rights along the borderlands, specifically focusing on migrant communities living in Tijuana, uh, immigrants detained in the detention centers, the local undocumented community, and the, the vigil that they set up outside of the privately owned detention center in Otay Mesa was primarily to bring awareness of the fact that people are dying while they are detained. Uh, a lot of these cases, they're migrants with no criminal records or nonviolent criminal records who are detained almost indefinitely while they're cases kind of work their way through the immigration courts. So they're in there for a long time. It's been particularly lethal for for some migrants during the pandemic. Actually, one of the first, uh, if not the first, in-custody detention death was from San Diego uh, last year by a gentleman who died from COVID-19. Now, this vigil is interesting because it comes at a time when just a week after uh, 24 members of Congress, all from California, have sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees ICE, asking them to shut down the state's three detention facilities. You know, the San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Hernandez wrote a story about an altar at Mum's Flowers in southeastern San Diego. That altar remembers victims of crime. What stood out to you most in that piece? Mainly two things uh, stood out from the piece. The first, and Sadly, we can't share it because this is radio, but our, the images from uh, the photographer, Ana Ramirez, I mean, they're, they're just really impressive and, and capture the, the mood and the place and just everything surrounding uh, what, what the shop owner is doing over there in Southeast San Diego. And more than that, just how David Hernandez wrote about the community aspect of, of this event. It's, it's organic. It's not led by one group or one activism or, or the government. It's essentially just people around San Diego who have lost family members or friends and loved ones to violent crime. And it, it kind of shows the spirit of Dia de los Muertos, right? A lot of these people, they don't know each other outside of the fact that they're joined by having this tragic circumstance in their life. But they come together in this public place to grieve together and build community around that And I think that's particularly powerful given the last year and a half of COVID restrictions and isolations that we've all gone through. There's also a Dia de los Muertos event tomorrow in Tijuana. Who's behind that event and what issues are they highlighting? So there are two organizations behind the event, uh, two different advocacy groups, both of them dealing with uh, the deported community down in Tijuana. One is a deported veterans group and the other is a deported mothers group. 
And they're using Dia de los Muertos and this altar to, to give a chance to the deportees living in Tijuana, a chance to come together and honor and celebrate the passing of, of their loved ones who have died in the United States while they themselves have been deported. Uh, it raises questions of uh, family separation and really just a human toll of deportation. I think in this country, we tend to think of uh, deportation as the end of a story, right? Deportation is kind of what happens to, to immigrants after they've deemed uh, and kind of been found that they, they don't have the right paperwork or the right circumstances to be in this country. And that's kind of the end of it. Well, these groups are kind of showing that, no, it's not the end of it because life goes on after deportation. And a lot of deportees in Tijuana will struggle to find housing, jobs, and even just that real human aspect of being physically separated from their life and family that they had here in the United States. So I think it's just drawing attention to that uh, dynamic. I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.